everybody. Welcome to the Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I'm your host, Brian April. Uh, all of our episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can follow us on YouTube at Uncommon Comedy Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook at Uncommon Comedy. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at Uncommon Comedy Tour. Uh, today's guest is a very, very funny comedian. He performs all over uh, the world. Um, has the, I think, third uh, highest or most popular dry bar comedy special in history. Uh, just put out a new special called Modern Mail and uh, just really, really funny. And I'm, I'm super excited to get a chance to to talk to him because uh, we don't get a chance to talk much. So please welcome the very funny Zoltan Cassis, ladies and gentlemen. What's up, Zoltan? Hey, thank you. Thank you for the very nice introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thanks for, for coming on. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I love about your act, and I'm really excited about this because, um, you know, we've talked about bits, uh, you know, we've done a bunch of shows together. We've talked about a couple of jokes here or there, and we've talked yeah. about the dry bar here or there, but I've never really gotten a chance to like talk and get to know you a little bit and know a little bit about the, your comedy process. So I'm, I'm really excited to do this. Um, one of my favorite things about you, though, is uh, the ease of which you are on stage. Um, you're always writing. You have this great uh, personality, and you come up with material, so much material, so quickly, and you're just super, super funny. I remember when I first heard of you, everyone was like, they'd say, who's the funniest person, you know, in town? And I was like, Zoltan, Zoltan, Zoltan. And of course, you know, being a comedian, I'm like, who's this Zoltan guy? You know? Oh, like, yeah, I've <laughs> met a lot of people that come in with the arms folded, and I'm like, hey, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> have to be your favorite. I, don't, I have no control over anyone saying anything. Yeah, and that's what I love about you. You're very like humble. You're very low, low ego. Very, you know, whatever. And then I, I saw you perform, and I was like, oh, this dude's this dude's great. So, uh, I, I really love uh, being on shows with you and watching you perform. It's it's the way you work is a, a really great thing. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about you for a bit. What inspired you, or who inspired you to start doing a stand up? I th uh, the first stand up special I, I ever watched was uh, Sinbad. Afros and bell bottoms. Uh, there was a time in like the late '90s where Comedy Central would play that special on a loop, like they, you could turn it on anytime and it would be on there. And uh, I watched it with my mom, and I was like, "This is great!" I actually did my first ever stand-up set. I was 12, and uh, it was uh, end of the year award ceremony at my middle school, and I did uh, five minutes of Sinbad. At the end, I didn't know, like, I didn't know you couldn't do other people's jokes. Right. Because I was 12. And so I just did, I did five minutes of Sinbad and killed, of course, because Sinbad's hilarious. And so, so yeah, that's when I, like, uh, I, I guess, thought of the idea of doing stand-up. But at the same time, I didn't know how to, I was like, I, I don't know if I could come up with my own stuff. So my original dream, because I grew up in a trailer park, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. That's all I ever wanted to be. And uh, those guys, when you grow up in a trailer park, those guys are our idols. Those are our mm -hmm. heroes. Those are our, you know, Neil Armstrongs and Obamas <laughs> that we, yep. if you're in a trailer park, it's, it's the rock and, and macho man and all those guys. So that's Sorry, Rick, who's your favorite wrestler just out of, Oh, my favorite wrestler is Shawn Michaels. That Shawn was Michaels. my favorite, but okay. I got, I got a bunch. I actually just rewatched survivor series 96 because they played it on, on, on Fox the other night. Because, you know, there's no content. So they're like right. showing old wrestling pay-per-views. So I'm digging that. But um, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And then when I got out of high school, I was going to go have shoulder surgery. Because I was still going to try to be a wrestler. I got bad shoulders. 
and got the MRI and I had this surgery scheduled and they told me I was going to be in a sling for about six to nine months, something crazy, like one of those with like the stick underneath. Mm. And I'm like, well, I'm going to need something to do. And then I remembered that, you know, I very much enjoyed stand up and I was always in the back of my head. So I looked up an open mic and signed up and uh, I went to it. I bombed in front of my friends and a few other people. Um, and then I went and did it again and then again. And then I ended up booking like a little local show that would have interfered with my surgery. So I ended up canceling my surgery <laughs> and I still haven't got my shoulders fixed there. Uh, I still have an arm that's longer than the other and they hurt constantly. But uh, <laughs> that's that's how I got into stand up. But it's totally worth it. Yeah, totally no, I, I, I whatever success I have in stand up, there's no way I would have gotten anywhere near it in the world of professional wrestling. So well, I'm really glad that, that it went the way it went. If you had had that cast, you could have been Cowboy Bob Orton again. You know, like yes, Cowboy I Bob would have Orton brought that back. Just yeah, like absolutely. Owen Hart brought it back in the mid nineties, I yeah. would have been. I would have had the never ending, the never healing arm. Exactly. For those who have no idea what we're talking about, it was a wrestler who had this uh, brace on his arm that from an injury, and it it just never healed, and he wore it for decades. So yeah, and used it as a weapon, and yes. then he just had like a broken arm for like ten years or however long he used it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so you're talking about that first, uh, open mic show that you did. Tell us a little bit about the very first show you did. The first, uh, venue I performed at, um, it wasn't the comedy store. Cause this was back in 2006. Like the San Diego scene is really great. We have four full-time clubs, a fifth one up in Escondido and a bunch of rooms, but it wasn't like this back when I started in 06, we had the comedy store and maybe Lestats was running on Tuesdays, and then they had an open mic on Mondays. But there wasn't a lot of places to get up, and there was a place called the Comedy Co-op. Uh, did you ever get a chance to go to it? Uh, I think, was it up in, like, Oceanside or uh, Carlsbad or something no, like that? No, it was, um, it was uh, Sorrento Valley, okay. so just inland from La Jolla where all the business parks are. And that's what it was. It was this. It was a comedian who was also ran a law website, but <laughs> so he rented out this um, office space that had a garage in the back. I guess it used to be a mechanic shop or something before mm. he took it over. And he wanted to go do stand up, so he went to the comedy store, and he hated it. Like he got made fun of by whoever was hosting that night. And he's like, this is stupid. So he opened the comedy co op in spite of the La Jolla Comedy Store. So he had an open mic where he gave everyone six minutes instead of three. And so I signed up for that one because it wasn't 21 and up and I wouldn't have to wait outside. So I went, I signed up for that one and I brought like six or seven of my friends, which is so stupid. I don't know why anyone would bring their friends to their first time trying it. And like, if it was your first time surfing, would you bring six of your closest friends to go sit on the beach and watch you drown? Like, why would you do that? You wouldn't bring your family and friends to watch you learn to play the guitar in your garage. Right. But here I am. I'm like, it's my first night doing stand up and I invite all my closest friends. And uh, it I bombed like you're supposed to on your first time. Like I got some laughs, but they were in places I wasn't expecting a laugh and all the places I expected a big ha ha nothing. <laughs> and uh, that's how it went. And it was actually intriguing. Like I was I actually thought I was going to do well at it. I was surprised when it didn't go well. And I just went in like a dumb 19 year old. <laughs> With like all this, you know, when you're 19, you have confidence for no reason. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I went into it with this like dumb, naive confidence. And then I bombed. It brought me down. 
But then I was intrigued. I was like, well, why did I bomb? Why did this not go well? So I went back the next week, sucked again, and then just kept sucking for a while until finally, you know, things started to get a little better. But that was the first show. Wow. Yeah, it's usually a lot of people, like you said, will bring just a ton of people and then they'll laugh at them regardless. Right. And then they go somewhere without their friends and they get punched right in the face. With right. The, yeah. yeah. So I kind of had that except minus the first set going great. <laughs> my first set, I had my friends. It went poorly. And then the following sets, they stopped showing up and, and they went just as poorly. So it was, uh, yeah, there was less of a letdown that way. It's and that it's weird that something that goes that you know I don't want to say that wrong, but when it goes wrong like that, that that hooks you. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I was always comparing it to, you know, I didn't really like school, but the the classes I would get good grades in are were any of the ones where I would be able to where there was like a presentation in the class. Mm -hmm. Because my content of my presentation was never that good, but I was I'm able to talk in front of an audience and. I was entertaining enough to where those parts I would make eye contact and my speech would be engaging and kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And so it would bring up the fact that my content was terrible. I had nothing to actually tell the class. And so I was thinking of that. I was like, well, well, this is going to be like giving a presentation in front of the class. I'll be able to do this. So I just went in like an idiot and then it didn't work out. Well, it's, you, you had half the equation being able to present it. You just need right. the material, which most people, some, it's amazing how many people forget that, oh, I have material, but they have no presentation or no performance or stage presence. Right. And then, you know, you go the opposite way where they can they can come in and capture the audience but have nothing to say. So Yeah, I was like, I had a lot of energy when I was yep. young. I remember that a lot of the older guys that were there, and I was 19, so everyone was older than me. But uh, a lot of the older people there were like, man, you have a lot of energy, but nothing really to say. And I'm like, yeah. they pretty much described me as like a, like a crazy homeless person who's got, wow. <laughs> and you're like, what are you saying? I don't know, but I really mean it. That's right. And in yeah. six minutes, when you don't know what you're doing, is that, I mean, it doesn't sound like a long time. That's a long time on stage. Yeah. And I, st I stayed on one topic for six minutes. I didn't know you were supposed to like jump wow. around. So wow. I talked about immigration. I, did, <laughs> I talked about how we should be looking out for the Canadians sneaking in, not the not not Mexican people. Wow. So and I talked about that for six whole minutes. Like I was, I brought up Celine Dion raking up our American dollars with her Canadian rake. <laughs> I I remember that was one of the that was like the only line that I really remember from that whole six minutes. You know, what would be interesting is if. Um, and I don't, I know I don't have a copy of mine because mine was from 97. Actually, technically it was 91 with my very first set. And then I, Whoa. yeah, I did it for like six months and then I stopped doing it. And then mm -hmm. uh, I went back in 97 and I've been doing that ever since. But it'd be interesting to like go back and take your old, your very, very first set and those premises and seeing yeah. if you could change them and punch them up into something today. Yeah, it would, it would be interesting. I mean, here we are, you know, what, 15, 14 years later, immigration yeah. is definitely still an issue. Uh, right now it's fallen behind, you know, uh, racial injustice and COVID, but it's right. still up there. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to go up there and see if I could poke fun at the Canadians and have people go along with it. 
Yeah. I and think it's, that topic's been beaten to death about looking out for Canadians, but you know, yeah. at it from a different angle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, cause people always say, Oh, that was, you know, my early stuff was awful. And it's like, well, the premises not weren't necessarily awful. The premises are still funny to you. It's right. just, you're, you're, you're much better now technique wise and your voice and you know how to make things funnier. So sometimes when people get stuck for material, I say, Hey, go back and look at your old stuff and yeah. see if you can just rework it and rebrand it and go at, like you said, attack it from a different angle. So That's, I, I like that advice too. I, I do that too. Sometimes if I have nothing really new to say, I'll go through the, my little notebook of ideas and I'll find mm -hmm. like a story that I've been trying to work on that just is missing pieces to, try to ramble through that and then maybe you'll fall into something. Right. Um, so how long did it take for you uh, and how much were you getting up before things started to like click for you on stage? I was getting up. So I was in the beginning, I was only really going to the comedy co-op, which is every Thursday. And then they had, what they did was on Saturdays. So their open mic on Thursday was like a competition. Mm -hmm. And then the top three would, I think the top three would get extra time on the Saturday open mic. So there was a time where I would do six minutes on Thursday and then there was like, I had a good streak of like winning the open mic. And then, so I would get 12 minutes on sun on Saturday and I would try wow. to do like different sets on those shows. So it was like 18 minutes a week on just there. And then slowly I started to like, I was showing up at the comedy store, but that place always intimidated the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's where I was going up, going up. And I feel like, I remember the first show that it felt like it clicked. or And by clicked, I mean like, oh, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, was a show in Encinitas at the, um, it's a place that's not even there anymore. It's a place called the Artist Colony. It was a bunch of artist bungalows that artists could rent and sell their work. And then they had a main clubhouse. And they ran a monthly show there by a guy mm -hmm. named Bob Murphy. You know Bob Murphy. Yep, that's yeah. that's what I was thinking of when you said comedy co-op. That's the one, the artist colony. Oh, you were thinking of the artist colony. Yeah. So those are the two. I, I performed at those two venues a lot, and I, I think the first time I worked the artist colony, and I have a, I have a, I have video of this set. Um, it's hidden on YouTube. I'll never show it to anybody. But <laughs> but there was a moment in there where I told a story. And it got a really good reaction and it got a way better reaction than the other jokey jokes that I was kind of doing or attempting to. And I was like, oh, that's maybe that's my thing. I'm more like I have to tell more stories and little quips of stuff that's actually happened to me and not, you know, my hilarious condom joke or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. whatever I was trying to do at the time. And I, I remember that was one of the first big moments where I was like, oh, that's I think that's what I'm supposed to do. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's always interesting when that happens. Did you have this? This happened to me when I was on stage. Do you ever just stop and go? Wait, I, at one point I was on stage and I go, wait a minute, everybody here is listening to me, <laughs> and they're waiting for what I say and they're reacting to me. I don't know yeah. if you've ever had that happen to you, <laughs> where you just and I, you're on stage and it ha I was just like, this is bizarre. I, I, I actually had that moment happen to me recently. Uh, mm. It was during the lockdown and I was, I, this whole thing has like taught me that I'm not the person that I thought I was. Like if you had asked me who I was four months ago, I would have told you, oh, I'm kind of like an introvert who, you know, I enjoy company to a, I have like a time limit with people. Like I can maybe hang out with them for a couple hours and I need my alone time. But that's not who I am. Apparently I'm a people person because I didn't take in count 
Like all the times I go on stage, that's how I like to interact with people, right. which is totally narcissistic. That's how <laughs> I like to talk to people. I want to be on stage. They have to shut up and listen to me. And then you can react with laughter, but that's it. And that's how I, I, I realize that where I'm like, oh, that's how I get my social interaction. Mm-hmm. and my. So I actually love people. I just don't love them to talk or, or give their opinion. I, wanted, I want them to listen to me, give mine. <laughs> which is a horrible thing to learn about yourself. But it kind of relates to that where you're like, oh, that's what I like about this. I like all these people sitting here and listening to me. Nice. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I don't that's, know what it says about my childhood, but it definitely says something. That's, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm kind of like that too. You just sit there and you, I, I've been pretty comfortable in the, the lockdown and then you just sit there. That's what I would do beforehand was just stay kind of home and then I would go and that was my socializing with right. comedians or whatever and then going on stage and that was it. I don't yeah. need it. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then I thought I enjoyed like the empty hotel rooms and all that stuff of being on the road. But it was like, yeah, but you got a whole hour of nothing but attention. And then so, yeah, after that, you're cool with being in a hotel room for the next, you know, 20 hours until you have to do it again. Right. But isn't it weird, though, when you um, when you're on stage in front of 300, 500, however many people have a great time. You get that adrenaline rush. And then 20 minutes later, you're sitting in a hotel room alone. Like, Yeah, the, it used to be weird to me. And then it got to be very normal. Like in yeah. the beginning, it used to be very hard to like come down. Like, yeah. ooh, I want to go. And sometimes it still feels that way where sometimes you just have a really good set. And you're like, man, I want to go out and hang with my friends and drink and celebrate because you're feeling up. Yeah. And But I think the more I've done it, the more... I can quickly go back to the hotel, be in bed, and Netflix is fired up. <laughs> yeah, nice. yeah. The, the girl I'm seeing, she was very surprised that she came to a show, I think in Florida or Dallas. I forget where it was, but it wasn't long after I was off stage. We were both tired, and we were just both back at the hotel, and we were watching Netflix. And she's like, you're not up anymore? And I'm like, no. And she goes, you had a good set? And I'm like, yeah, I felt like I had a good set. But it wasn't anything I can't sleep off, you know? Right. Right. Um, so what was the best piece of advice you've received about comedy? Um, I think one of the best pieces is, uh, is it, was, it wasn't given to me. It was given to everybody. Is the last episode that Conan O'Brien did on The Tonight Show. Do you remember that? When he, uh, he, well, he got kicked off and right. they gave it back to Leno and he gave the speech on cynicism. And how he's against people that are cynical of others in like in the world of art or comedy or whatever, because he was saying it accomplishes nothing. And his the whole point of his speech, he was saying he was like, I'm not funnier than anybody, but I'm nice and I'm likable, and people liked being around me, and I eventually got this job. And I and the gist he had a great line in there that I'm going to butcher, but the gist of it was. If you're just a good person and you work hard, you'll be surprised where you end up. And I, I like that message gets hmm. it's such a great message because there's so much, you know, inner community drama in stand up and all that. I'm sure in every community, I'm sure if you if we got into acting, there'd be right. personal drama there. But none of it. A lot of it doesn't matter. You know, oh, I don't like this person. I don't like that person. You're like, dude, we're coworkers. And essentially we're coworkers in a business where it's about us. We're in a business of us. Right. And these are just people we work with. So yeah, there might be people you don't like, but you don't have to tell them you don't like them. You can just work with them. You don't have to have lunch with them. 
you don't have to be cynical about them behind their back either. So I think that was the best piece of advice where I was like, man, everyone listen to that. <laughs> like, Listen to that and worry about yourself and worry about being really funny on stage in a good way and be nice and then good things will come. Sometimes they take longer than other people. Sometimes people get them quicker than you do. But if you stick with it and you're actually good at it and you're not a horrible person, it will eventually come. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And it was one of those things... Uh, I used to be very much so that, you know, arms folded, you know, I started in Boston, which was a very competitive, very cutthroat. Yeah. Um, it's an market. empty city. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very, you know, you have that just built in and it was like, there are only so many spots. And so you were rooting for people to fail and you were rooting for, you know, and, and it's just <laughs> not a great way to live. Um, you know, then I got sick and my perspective kind of changed like, yeah, you know, I don't need to be that right. way, you know? Um, and I, I truly believe it now. And, uh, so I apologize to everybody for ever, you know, doing that, but, um, just yeah, that. It was, it's, you know what it is. It's if I came up in that scene, I would have been just like you. Yeah. It's all in, it's all in whatever you come up in. I, and it's because of the comedy co-op. If I had been a comedy store guy, I would have been as cynical and as mean to every new comic that came in as is still common today right that's not where i came up at the comedy co-op we were so lucky to have an audience that we wanted all the comics on the open mic to do well so they didn't leave mm. and they would come back so it was in our best interest that you have a good set and i have a good set and that person has a good set so we can still keep building and keep doing this thing that we love so instead of go instead of trashing the guy because they suck instead you pull them off to the side and you go hey why don't you try this right it was a little bit of a like a it was like a kind of a positive community at the comedy co-op which is i know is very anti-stand-up but that's kind of what i came up in yeah that's that's pretty rare um well at least in my, that was not my experience i'll say that yeah, i was very fortunate that i had experience at the comedy store but the comedy yeah. store was a built-in institution where audiences would show up and they kind of didn't need you to do well because they're like, well, I'm going to do well. Right. So it was just a matter of circumstance. I mean, it, this was the comedy club I would work at was in a was in a uh, office, you know, park. Nobody stumbled upon this place. All right. right. People that were going there were going there because they're going to this and we didn't want to lose them. So that, that's where that came from. Yeah, it's that's uh my uh, I was very fortunate. There was a headliner who, you know, I was a zero threat to him. Um, yeah. And I was very lucky because he got a DUI and um, <laughs> needed someone to give him a ride to his, his venues. This is before Uber and all that. <clears throat> so uh, he was next town over. I was like, I'll do it. And so uh, he just took me along. I got to pick his brain. He had been doing it 25 years at that point. So I got to just really pick his brain. He introduced me to, you know, people got me into doors that I wouldn't have had opened. And, uh, you know, and I, I remember that, and now it's one of the things I try to do is like I'll go to the open mics, uh, whether it's at the pal uh, the comedy palace or certain right. places, and if I see somebody, one, uh, as long as you get on stage and you try, you have my respect. Anyone who gets yeah. up, whether they're good or bad, you know, provided right. you're hopefully you're a decent person, that that makes it better. But yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, like that. But uh, I'll try to like pull them aside, and go, hey, you know, what about this and this and this, and try to just give back a little that way. And I think it's just really important, like you said, just to have that support and be a nice guy. Man. And I truly believe this now that there, there's room for everybody, you know, because sure. people would always sit there and go, oh, he, he has a guitar, you know, headliner helper. He does, you know, impressions. 
oh, she she does prop comedy. Like there's room and an audience for everybody. Yeah. So, you, so I just the, the audience doesn't care. The audience yeah. isn't sitting there going, oh, a guitar act. They're like, oh, this is different. And then yeah. that person's gonna destroy. Take it as a challenge and go. Are my jokes gonna hold up? Like, let's say you have to follow the guitar act, right? Right. Or a prop actor, whoever you're looking down at. Challenge yourself. Go. All right. Can I top this? Right. And I remember one time I was working in Vegas, and I've always struggled in Vegas. It was my first time working a full week at a comedy club, and there I was, and I'd been struggling all week. And we're coming now. It's Saturday. And there was a comic magician who was going to do a guest set before me because I was featuring that weekend. And this is how his set ended. He was on a giant eight-foot unicycle with a sword, and he stabbed a deck of cards. All the cards fall except for one at the tip of the sword, and that's the card that someone in the audience picked. I mean, beyond a standing ovation. You know, they mm -hmm. destroyed. And then I had to go on after that. There's cards everywhere. And people just saw Cirque du Soleil mixed with comedy, mixed with magic. And I'm like, I have to follow this with my words. And I <laughs> said that. I was very honest. And I ended up having a good set. I didn't have a better set than they did, than the, than the magician, comedian person. But I, I still stuck in there. Yeah. And I think you learn from those situations. And Absolutely. those little situations make you a little better. Yeah. Um, what comics make you laugh? It can be well-known or it can be uh, unknown comics to most people. I really like, uh, as a comic, I used to be in the scene here. He's up in LA now, but Billy Bonnell makes me laugh all the time. Yeah. Uh, if, he, if he ever posts a clip, I'm watching it. And there's a good chance I'm watching it five times. Yeah. Uh, some about it, like he could just read a phone book and be funny to me. Hmm. It's just the way he talks, the way his vibe is on stage, the way he's just the way he, him, I'm a fan of him and his material is really funny on top of that too. But he's, he's, he would be my pick of, uh, of like a non, you know, famous comic that, uh, that, uh, that people like, and then, uh, like a famous comic I like watching. I mean, other than the obvious ones, like Chappelle and stuff, who I'm very much a fan of, Burr, Segura. I really like Nate Bargatze. A lot of people are liking him now. Like yep. They're getting to know who he is now. He's been funny for a long time. Um, I like Mark Maron. I don't know. There's a bunch. But, yeah, I'm really into him. Nice, nice. Um, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit, uh, because I think you're such a prolific writer, uh, what is your writing process like? Yeah, it's, I wish there was much of a process. I um, I talk to myself all day, like in my head. And so if there, it, it's been less now that there's been a lockdown. I've only done four sets in the last two weeks since it's been coming back. But usually, mm -hmm. you know, I, I keep a little notebook. I also have my notes app in my phone. And I'll have an idea, like I'll jot something in there. And then... I'll think about it in my head. Like if you looked at the note, it would just say, uh, I didn't like avocados when I was seven. And you're like, what does that mean? But the bit in my head is like, which I still haven't done on stage, but this is my process. The bit I'm having in my head is the people that are, that believe black lives matter. They just don't like the title of it. And they want to call it all lives matter. Those people just remind me of being seven, not liking avocados because they're green and green reminded me of vegetables. So like, I'm not even against them. They're just like judging a book by the cover. They're like, I don't like the title, but it's like, you might like the context. You're like, what right. if the best book on the planet, but the cover says, 
I hate Zoltan Cassis. And you're like, well, I'm Zoltan Cassis. I'm going right. to read this book. And you're like, no, but you got to read the insights. Like, what does it mean? And um, that's kind of the, like the idea I'm thinking of. So I keep, I just keep, I keep thinking about it. I think about it in the shower. I think about it when I drive. I think about it when I went for my walk for coffee today. And that's kind of my process. And if things were normal, uh, I'd be going on stage tonight talking about it. Hmm. And then hopefully trying to figure it out. Do you record your sets? I do. I do. Uh, usually on my phone, audio. I just like set the recorder. Uh, it's funny. My first set back was two weeks ago up at Adams Club in Escondido. And I was so nervous from not doing a set for three months. Not only did I not record my first set back, but I also didn't put it on airplane mode. And <laughs> I forgot how to take the mic out of the mic stand. It was like a whole, it was a disaster. The set went well, but there's no recorded evidence of it. Um, but yeah, I usually record the set. And then that really helps with new jokes. Because sometimes in the heat of the moment, and because you're scared and excited about this new bit, you'll say something in a way you didn't think of beforehand, or maybe the punchline you thought would work doesn't work. Now you're back on your heels and you blurt something out that ends up being really funny. And it's not just what you say, but how you say it, as you know. And sometimes you have to go back and listen to that and go, how did I deliver that, that it worked on Saturday and then didn't work on Sunday? And right. so that's why it's important to record yourself, even is though it, it's brutal to have to listen to yourself. It is. It's. I think that's the worst part of comedy is listening to yourself or watching sure. yourself back. It's. But it's it's so important. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And you just if you start to if you stop focusing on what you sound and look like, yeah. uh, with the exception of of you know facial expressions or yeah. body positioning or, or anything like that, yeah. um, but you just focus on the words and the you know the concept of it, then it, it becomes a little easier to to kind of judge and critique. Um, Absolutely, isn't it funny though that you get so rust? I mean. I get rusty if I'm not on stage in like a week. I, yeah. I, I haven't gone back yet because I'm still, I'm technically one of the vulnerable history of asthma and all that sort of stuff. So right. I'm being a little more cautious about uh, going back. And I just, I can't even imagine how rusty I'm going to be after three months, three, four months or however long it is. I didn't know how to start. I, like, I, I don't even, I was like, what did I do in the beginning? <laughs> I would, I would, uh, I did all the stuff I wanted to talk about, like all the COVID stuff and the protest stuff. And then once I ran out of that, because I was doing like 20 minutes or 25 minutes, once I ran out of that, I was going back to the jokes I was doing before the lockdown happened. And a lot of them, I forgot the wording of it. There was a couple where I went into the jokes where I'm like, in my head, I'm going, oh no, I don't remember the punchline. <laughs> and hopefully, and then a couple of them, I stumbled back into it. Like I, I found the punchline again just by saying the words leading up to it. And right. I was like, made it out of that one. But there was a couple where I just didn't remember the punchline. I was like, this used to have a punchline. And, you know, that would like the audiences have been forgiving because we've been upfront with them going, hey, this isn't like riding a bike. Right. You know, but we, we used to do this, you know, five to seven nights a week. And we used to be really sharp and bam, bam, bam. And then now mm -hmm. we're like some heavyweight boxer coming off the couch. We're going to be a little pudgy until we get back <laughs> into fighting shape, you know. Isn't that... Um I, I was going to ask you about that. Do you have your stuff written down? Because like you said, when you do it five, seven times uh, a week, yeah, you don't need to because it's, it's just burning in your brain and you right. know memorized. And then you go away from, even if it's just a bit that you haven't done in a while, you go, Oh, I used to have a tag there. What was that tag? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, and that's, that's why the recording of your sets is so important. But I don't, like, so some comics word out their bits every word, like in a notebook, word for word. That's not really how I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason I, I, I don't do it that way is because if I start looking at a piece of paper with all the words written out, all the ands and thes and every tag and everything, for me, when I go on stage, I start performing it like I'm reading it instead mm. of saying it. So it kind of messes me up. Gotcha. And so to keep myself conversational, I don't write all the words out and I okay. leave it kind of rough. Like I have the punchline and I have the setup, especially if it's a new joke. I'm like, well, I think this is the punchline. And I think this will be the setup. And then the stuff in between, I'm like, well, we'll just get there. And especially if a joke is new, I try to get to the, the funniest part of the joke as quickly as possible to see if it's good. And then if mm-hmm. it's good, then we slowly start putting the stuff in the middle, stretching it out, maybe adding stuff at the end. Right. But the base bones of it, we got to find out, is this idea funny? Yeah. So it almost sounds like, um, and I do this a lot too. I'll, I'll start with the punchline first. You there know, when you see something and then I go, how can I get to there as quickly as possible? Yeah. And that same thing. So it's almost like working backwards where a lot of people will go, they'll have their setup and they go, oh, I need a punchline. Yes. And uh, I'm I'm more like, oh, I have this punchline. How yeah. do I get there? Right. No, no that's, that's kind of the way I do it. I'm like, I think this is funny. And then I just try to get to it as quickly as possible. And then the yeah. more times I say it, the more time other little wrinkles start coming in. And then yeah. my favorite is when you have like a line that you like, it just doesn't have a home. Like I have for, for a couple of years, I had this line about museums where I'm like, this is the most fun anyone's ever had at a museum where you just walk around and look at stuff and go, huh. <laughs> and I remember one time I said it at Lestat's and nobody laughed, but Caleb Sinan, who's a comedian I'm a big fan of, was off to the side and he laughed at just that little notion. And I don't remember what joke it was in context to. Maybe it didn't even have one. I just said it on its own. Um, he was like, there's something there. And then later I did this, like two years after that, I came up with this joke about the Harry Houdini Museum, because I went to a Harry Houdini Museum in Wisconsin. And then that little line fit right in there. Hmm. And I was like, hey, it took two years, but this dumb little line that could never live on its own and never really fit anywhere, it found a little home. And those are the parts that get me excited. Have you ever thought of um, maybe just doing a a small section of your set going, here are some random thoughts? Yeah, yeah, and, then, uh, um, and just kind of throwing it in there so that you don't have to almost like Stephen Wright ish. Right, I, I that would be a fun idea. I don't know if it would fit my style, or maybe it would, but I've never really tried it that way. But as soon as you said it, it reminded me of a comedian I started with. Uh, he's still a good friend of mine, Stuart Swanson. Um, he kind of did that where at the end of a set, he would go, "Here are some words that don't go together," mm. and they were. That was the concept of the thing, but I think the way he built that idea initially was what you were talking about, where it's like these little pieces that don't have homes. Why don't we put them together, almost like non sequiturs and just random lines? And and it became really funny. It was a fun way for him to close the set. Yeah, that would be an interesting uh, thing, especially when it's, you know, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about during this lockdown is, how, what else can I try in my act that's different that I haven't necessarily done before just to, you know, another challenge. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, for, for everyone's got that bit, whatever it is for me, it's a story of meeting Jean-Claude Van Damme when I was a kid that I've been trying for years to get the right 
like it just doesn't work. It's a good story. Like mm -hmm. it's a fine story to tell somebody, but it just doesn't, it just, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. Maybe one day it'll work out, but that's yeah, one that's of those I've been working on the lockdown going, how do we make this really entertaining all the way through? Dude, that's my Simpson story of auditioning for um, their 20th anniversary special right as I got facial paralysis. I have this whole story about yeah. having to go on camera <laughs> with my face just frozen on half of it. and just It was, it was Bell's palsy, right? Uh, it was... Um, it's called Ramsey Hunt syndrome, which uh, part of oh. it is the the palsy. It's a uh, <clears throat> it's misdiagnosed a lot. It I just see. comes with uh, some other aspects of it, some balance issues and and wow. that sort of thing. So, uh, so but yeah, bells. yes, it's uh, that's why I say in my act, it's like the collector's edition, and it's just all these you know. So it's facial paralysis plus hearing loss plus vision loss plus you know vertigo plus loss Perfect. of taste and all these other, you know, crazy things. And it's a collection of everything you wouldn't want. Exactly. When, when you're doing a TV thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, I have the story and it's great and it's embarrassing and it's funny, but I just can't get it to work. Yeah. And it's just, you just go, all right, well, I'll just keep that as a story on the side. So, right. Yeah. It's just going to be this thing that I have that hopefully one day will work. But as of right now, yeah. Cats you know, or whatever, is working. And it's funny because there's so many things like someone could go to you or, Hey, tell it, you know, write something about the moon landing. And you'd be like, sure, I can do that. Or, you yeah. know, all these, all these things. And we can take so many different ideas from out of nowhere. But then this one thing we go, Oh, this is amazing here. And you just like, stare at it. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, no, nope, not at all. Uh, so speaking of not at all, what is the worst show you've ever had? Oh, I've had a lot of them. Um, <laughs> I really have. Yeah. Uh, the one that always comes up for me, and I will burn down Penn State Harrisburg one day. <laughs> uh, if but I'm, I'm putting it out there. If one day Penn State Harrisburg catches on fire, it was me. All right, <laughs> don't don't bother looking. It was me. Just find out where I am and go nice. get me. It was me. I was doing, it was in 2015, and that was the year I got to uh, quit my day job because I booked a lot of colleges. I went to NACA, and it went really well, and I booked all these colleges. So I was on this long college tour for like four months. I would come home for like a day or two and then leave again for like three weeks and come home for a day. It was crazy. Right. And uh, so this is the whole lead up. The night before Penn State Harrisburg, I'm at Washington Jefferson College outside of Pittsburgh, I show up, it's a small room and there's like 10 students there. And I'm like, that's cool. I can perform for that. And uh, the person in charge of the show is like, hey, can we wait a few more minutes? Because I think more people are coming. And I'm like, cool. We wait a few more minutes. No one else shows up. And those 10 people that were there left because the show didn't start. And so the person that was in charge, this, she was a student. And she goes, oh my, I am so sorry. Uh, here's your check. And then I didn't have to do a show. And I remember like grabbing the check and looking at her going, never apologize for this. Yeah. I just, I get to go back to the Marriott bar and go have dinner and drinks. And I just got this check for nothing. This is great. Next night I'm at Penn State Harrisburg. I walk into a similar situation. It's like a big cafeteria kind of thing that goes on forever. It's huge. And then in the corner is a stage and a microphone, a poster of my face with my name misspelled, but nobody in that sitting area at all. There isn't anyone forever. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going to get another check again. And I'm going to be drunk at the Marriott bar. This is wonderful. I'm living the dream. And just as I'm having that thought, uh, 
the young student who's in charge of that show, she was not nice. She just looks at me and goes, well, we paid you. And I was like, <laughs> what does that mean? And she goes, get up there. And I'm like, there's no one here. And she made me go on stage, this horrible person. I don't, Listen, I don't wish ill on anybody, but I hope she's gotten a lot of flat tires in, <laughs> in, like, in the last five years. She deserves a lot of flat tires. I hope every time she gets in a car, she just goes, again? Like, that's how many flat tires she deserves. So I have to go on stage. There's nobody there. And by the way, this I have to do an hour. Not 45 minutes, 60 minutes. 60 whole minutes. And I'm on stage. There's like three students way in the... I can't even see their faces. That's how far away they are. And I beg them to come up to the front. I'm like, please sit in the front. I promise, like, there's going to be a prize at the end. There's no prize. The prize is me trying to leave with my dignity. And... The three students come up and sit in the front and I'm doing my my show as best as I can. And about 15 minutes in, one of the students gets up to leave. And as they're pushing the double doors open, I go, what, what was it? What, what happened? Was it the cat jokes? Just trying to say anything, you know, mm-hmm. and as they're pushing the door open, they just look at me and they go, "Ugh, I just can't. And then he opened the door <laughs> and walked out. That was 15 minutes into 60. I had 45 more minutes to do in front of these two other kids that now can't leave. Like they feel like they can't leave. Right. And I still think of that set and Penn State Harrisburg will burn to the ground one day. That is hysterical. Yeah. For for people who aren't comedians, what is it like trying to do an hour or uh, for like two people? Like what is... It's a lot of crowd work. Yeah. It's mainly crowd work. Yeah, it's mainly interviewing the audience. It's uh, I, I talk about this all the time. I mean, this might be a little too inside business, but anytime someone books me for a private event, I, I, I ask for a lot of money, like more than I think they would be willing to spend. Mm-hmm. And usually they go, ooh, that's slightly out of our budget. And I'm like, well, what is your budget? And then usually their number is like half of what I asked for. And I go, okay, well, how about this? Instead of doing 60 minutes or 45 minutes, I do 30. And they go, that's great, because they're like, we still get 30 minutes. And the reason I do that is because there's a a big difference between bombing at a private event for 30 minutes and Mm -hmm. bombing for 60. Like like 30 minutes, you you see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's bright. Like, I could bomb in my sleep in 30 minutes. Like, that's easy. I won't even hurt my feelings. Um, But bombing for 60... Even bombing for 45, you can still kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. But 60, bombing for 60 feels like an eternity. It feels like how long this year has felt. That's how long it feels to bomb for 60 minutes. (laughs) Like you feel like you need your beard trimmed halfway through. Like you need a haircut. You need everything. So uh, that's kind of what I do. And then if the company or the private event does give me the number that I asked for. I'm like, well, at least if I have to bomb for 60 minutes, I'm being disgustingly overpaid. So this is great. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah. Always negotiate to the moon and then settle for less money and then less time. Really good advice. <laughs> out there. That's how you negotiate a private <laughs> event. Because private events generally are terrible. And, that, uh, and that's exactly why. Like yeah. private events, whether it's a company Christmas party or some kind of community event or what or fundraiser, they can be really bad. And, and honestly, those places don't need more than 30 minutes. Right. Even if it's not a bad show, 
it, every time I've done it, once I get to the 30 minute mark, I'm like, man, they would be so happy if I just ended now. Right. They want me to do 15 more minutes or, or God forbid another 30, you know? Yeah. And it just makes it better for everybody. It's better for you. It's better for them. And yeah. And it's uh because also when you're doing that and it's a small, if it's a smaller crowd, you're burning through more material anyway, just because yep. of, you know, and it's so you may have 30, you may be doing 30 minutes, but you might be doing 45 minutes of material. Yeah. Yeah. Depending just, on how good or bad the show is, you might be ripping through some really, yeah some, some serious material there. And I so also people, bombed on a cruise ship. That was one. Of, oh, I'm sorry. You were about to say something. No, 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 no. It's okay. I'm, I'm thinking of every bad show now. <laughs> I bombed on a cruise ship in January or November. I forget when. It was one of the last cruise ships I did before everything went to hell. Uh, it was a bunch of Brits. So this, I was meeting the ship in Florida or Boston. I don't know where. But the ship was coming across the Atlantic from the UK. So it was all British people. Now, if you guys don't know anything about British people, they're a horrible crowd to entertain. <laughs> they like dry, wordy comedy. They don't like anything with personality. Just like their food, they're a cold. <laughs> and I have I have fans in the UK, and they're good people. And I I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for a whole month, and I found out how to perform for them. I found out how to adjust to perform for them. But that was three years ago or two years ago, and here I am on the ship, and I, I know I'm gonna bomb. And I walk out on stage to do my first half hour set, and ten minutes in, nothing. I'm hitting them with the best I got and they're nothing. And the only laugh I got was this line that I said, cause everyone was in tuxedos and gowns cause it was formal night on this stupid ship. And after bombing for 10 minutes, I looked at him, I go, you know, what's funny about this? You guys are all in your tuxedos. You guys all look like you were dressed. Like you just came from a funeral and now you're watching another one. And then that like, <laughs> that got a giant applause break from this big theater full of people. And in my dumb head, this is, this goes to show you how you learn nothing in your career. In my dumb head, I go, I got him. This is like the moment <laughs> where I turn the set and now we're off to the races. Wrong. I went right back to bombing. They just like that one part where I acknowledged that I sucked and then <laughs> I went back to like try to be entertaining again. I'm like, no, 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 we still hate you. We just like that you brought out the fact how much we hate you. Yeah, instead then, of just saying goodnight. Yeah, instead <laughs> of saying goodnight. And then I had to do another show for him two days later. And I begged like the uh, production manager. I'm like, well, who's this for? Why do we have to do this? They hated me. I hate them. Just play a movie. Play a, play a, play a Chris Rock set or something. Play something better. And it was just, it was, it was hell in a handbasket bad. Wow. Wow. So for all you uh, British people who are listening, uh, send your hate mail to Zoltan, <laughs> ZoltanComedy.com. There are uh, Brits that like my stand-up and they send me messages and I will go out there to do a show eventually. But, oh boy, it's, it, it's going to take me a week to like figure out how they like it and then do it that way. That's how the Edinburgh Fringe Festival went. It was a mm -hmm. week of like rough sets. And then by the second week, I was like, oh, I kind of I kind of get what they're into. Gotcha. Uh, so we're talking with Zoltan Cassis. Uh, you can check him out uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Zoltan, Z-O-L-T-A-N comedy on YouTube at Zoltan Cassis, K-A-S-Z-A-S and uh, ZoltanComedy.com. Check out his Drive Our Comedy special, uh, www.DriveOurComedy.com slash Zoltan. And you actually also have a new special, uh, Modern Mail, which is out uh, now. Yeah. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's an hour. 
Uh, it's not, you know, I filmed it. It was actually my album recording, which 800 pound gorilla is putting out on Tuesday or no Tuesday is the Sirius XM. Uh, J- uh, July 7th is the album release. If you want the audio version, but the video version is on YouTube. Uh, and it's doing really well. We made it, made it over 500,000 views a couple days ago. Um, it's been up for a couple months, so I'm really happy about that. I like it when, like in the search bar, I put in comedy full special mm-hmm. and like my dumb face is like amongst like a bunch of big comedians and my views aren't that far off. So that nice. part's exciting. Uh, so yeah, go watch that if you're, if you're into it. Um, so now what's the biggest mistake that you see young comics make or newer comics? I think just getting into, just getting into like, like drama on the scene really seems unnecessary Mm because it's not going to matter. And it's also not, I think it's a bad idea to just associate yourself with one club or one room because that room can close. Like there's certain comics that are like, I'm a, I'm a store guy, or I guess the store is a pretty safe bet. They're going to be around forever, but I'm a madhouse guy. I'm an American comedy company guy. I'm a comedy palace guy. It's like, well, you should go do all the rooms, all the clubs, um, because San Diego is a really good test for how it's going to work on the road. Because San Diego is a good mix. Depending on the room you're working, it could be a little bit of a conservative crowd. It could be a real liberal crowd depending on where you are in the city. So one night when things are back to normal, you know, one night I could be at Lestat's, which is all a bunch of college kids. And I can see how like PC culture would react to this joke. And then the mm-hmm. next night, Wednesday night, I could be in PB in front of the party kids, see how they're into it. Thursday, I could be a madhouse doing your show where that's a clean show. And, and maybe the audience is a little more conservative because madhouse seems to pull like a little bit more of a conservative audience. I feel sometimes. So then you can test it there. So that's why I feel like don't get yourself in the scene drama because all you're doing is limiting limiting yourself from places to go perform that actually help you grow because you're in front of a different audience. Don't just perform in front of the people that you know already like you because what's the point of that? Right. You challenge yourself. Yeah, yeah, challenge yourself. And then it's easy to make people laugh that already agree with you. Mm-hmm. Now go word your political or social viewpoint joke in a way that makes someone laugh that you know disagrees with you. That's my favorite thing. One of my favorite things is like if someone comes up to me after a show or leaves a YouTube comment or something where I'm like, I I know I don't agree with this guy politically or we don't vote the same way, but that's funny. Yeah. That's the best. I mean, there's uh, entertaining people that I know agree with me is fine, but it, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's plain T-ball. Right. Right. Yeah. Or if you're not comfortable, if you've never been in front of an all black crowd, go do an all black club. Yeah. Yeah. Go you do know, an all like, black crowd. You know, do that. Or if you're you're not comfortable in front of people who are 60 or 70, go do that. Like, yeah. go, if you're not comfortable in front of college, go do that. Like, challenge yourself. And it just makes you a, a much better comedian, it makes you more well rounded. And just, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so now you're uh, kind of transitioning out of clubs now. I'm trying to. I think yeah. that that's still going to be a couple more years, but I want to I'm really into setting up my own shows. I started doing that 2 years ago where instead of going to a comedy club and working at a door deal, which I still do, but I find it much more satisfying to go rent out the venue or work out some kind of door deal with the venue directly and then promote it yourself, sell your own tickets on 
Eventbrite or brown paper tickets, whatever you're into, and you get to keep all the profits. You perform in front of your audience. There's no one there that got free tickets. Right. These are all people that already love you. And it's a magical feeling. It's the best. It's so fulfilling. There's no check drop. There's no late show. You do your show. You leave like a king. You're like, this is amazing. And then you go have dinner and you're back at the hotel. And that's what I want to do. So instead of like, hopefully I can pull this off in the next three to five years. But, you know, depending on when things go back to normal. But uh, ideally in three to five years, I'm not working at comedy clubs unless I'm in town working on material or I've done like a complete door deal with them. But that's kind of where I see myself going, hopefully. Nice. Now, just to, to touch on something, uh, you, you mentioned check drop. For those who maybe aren't comedians, uh, yeah. what is that and how do you deal with that when you're on stage? So, yeah. So the check drop is uh, all those foods and drinks you've been buying because they all have two drink minimums or food item minimums. Those checks get dropped uh, about 30 minutes or 15 minutes left in the comedian set, depending on the club you're working at. They're all different. But the reason it's annoying is because they all kind of happen at the same time and you lose the audience's attention for five to 10 minutes, depending on how quick they are in processing it. And if you're headlining a traditional club, it's not that big of a headache because you're doing at least 45 minutes or 60. Mm -hmm. And so they, let's say they start dropping the checks 40 minutes into your set or 30 minutes into your set. The audience already likes you. So you're not trying to win them over and then you lose their attention. Then they come back later and you close strong. So yeah, there's still a 10 minute gap where no one's listening to you, but at, let's say like the madhouse over there, they do more of a showcase style. So the headliners doing 20 to 30 minutes somewhere in there. So they drop the checks as you're being announced on stage. So your first five to 10 minutes, you might as well uh, be farting on a snare drum to steal a line from airheads. Like it doesn't matter. They're not listening to you. And then slowly you're gaining their attention back, but you don't have the rapport with them because you just went on stage. So it's just a real headache and I really don't like it. And <laughs> I honestly don't like late shows either. It's not fun. I don't want to do them. I already did this. Why yeah. I feel disingenuous doing the same material twice. It doesn't feel as natural. It doesn't feel as good. And really if I'm on the road, I want to do a seven or eight o'clock show be done at nine or nine or 10 o'clock, whatever. And I want to go experience your town. I want to go out and grab a drink, grab dinner before everything shuts down at 2 a.m. or whatever your curfew is. Um, so yeah, I don't like check drops. I don't like late shows. And that's why I'm trying to phase out of comedy clubs and just rent out my own venues. So for aspiring comics, what is the what do you do when the check drop happens? How do you engage? And you can't just stand there for 10 minutes while that happens. Uh, usually I just, I, I, I do material that I'm okay with it being ignored. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. a perfect example, but like. That, I mean, that's what I do. I yeah. Do. I'm like, I, well, these are the jokes I don't love as much. So they're going to be sacrificial tonight. And I guess I'll do these here now. I'll like notice it. Cause I don't know when they're going to drop the checks, but you can see it from stage. Right. You're like, oh, okay. Oh, I see what's happening. And then I acknowledge it. I usually do some dumb joke about not being able to figure out the tip. And then here's a couple burner jokes. And then I go, is everyone back? Cool. And then you wrap up to finish. Gotcha. Yeah. Song. Yeah. Cause I've seen some people just try to go in and, uh, 
talk to the audience during that point, and I'm just like, eh, I just rather just keep chucking along. And it's tough. It's tough. I mean, it, that's one way to do it. You can talk to the audience. You can do your material. Either way, they're you. You still only have fifty percent of their attention because they're doing this. Yep. yep. Uh, and the, and the worst is when they it's just a dumb setup. I don't know why clubs just don't do it at the end. Yeah, have something on screen or whatever you know, or, or at the club. Yeah. They got to show you the, they have to show their receipt to leave the club. So you don't get screwed on, uh, you know, people skipping out on their checks. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah. The worst is when they do it in waves. Have you, they just do like certain segments of the room and you're just like, can you please just drop them all? So you're not extending this. Yeah. Figure it out. I remember, I, I think someone told me that Brian Regan, when he was still working comedy clubs, but he was a draw, he had it in his writer that you couldn't drop the check for the first five rows until he was off stage. Because oh, wow. he wanted at least the people he could see, he wanted their attention at least while he lost the rest of the room for 10 minutes. That's, so, that's not a bad idea either. I don't yeah. know. Come up with something. There's a better way to do it. I remember yeah. Flappers in Burbank for a while, they stopped doing it. But for a while, they would drop the check at the very end after the show was over. And I was like, what a beautiful thing. And then you had to show your receipt to leave the showroom at the end. But then they stopped doing that for some reason. Maybe it was like too hard to turn the room over for the next show. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I really liked that for the short time they were doing it. Yeah. If you do that, then maybe just instead of going 90 minutes, make it 80 minutes. Yeah. You know, so you still have the time to drop. Anyway. Yeah. Even, yeah, there, there's a way around it. Shows in the states are long. Like in the UK, they're like 70 minutes or 60 yeah. minutes. They're they're shorter shows. People have less of an attention span over there. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what what have been some of the challenges for you as far as trying to like produce these independent shows and promoting and marketing? It's a lot more work. So you know, if you're just going to a, a work in a comedy club, you can do nothing and just show up and go do it. If you're on a flat rate and or if you're on a door deal, then you can set up in a Facebook event and put some money behind it, boost it, and plug it on all your social media. But if you're setting up your own venue, there's a lot more involved. Just finding a venue that you in a city you've never been in, that could be a challenge. That's just a Google search and a bunch of emails. A lot of people don't get back to you. A lot of these venues are run by, uh, by artists themselves, and you know how bad we are at getting back mm -hmm. on emails. So that's a challenge. Just finding a venue is hard. Then asking them how much they're open to renting it for. Some places want a million dollars for no reason. And you're like, just say no then. Just say right. you don't want me. And then other places are like, I don't know, 25 bucks. And you're like, great. It's all profit. Um, figuring out like uh, how to promote it. And if that's the other stress, like you're going to check that Eventbrite app every day, multiple times a day. <laughs> going, how many tickets are we at? How many tickets are we at? Like, I, one that really made me nervous was Oakland. I did Oakland in November or October of last year. And the place sat 100. And I wanted to, I was like, yeah, let's sell this thing out. And then the Monday, the show was on a Sunday. And the Monday before it, we were at 50 tickets. And I was like, ugh, what's happening? And then right. by the time Sunday came, well, we had like 110 people when we sold out that little room. So it, it, some markets, they buy tickets late. Mm -hmm. Some of them will buy it early and you'll sell out your little venue two weeks before the show, which is awesome. But then some of them are really tough. Miami is a tough market. That was one of the last independent shows I put on. Miami was a tough market. I also put it on after Valentine's Day like an idiot. 
And it was a late show, 10 o'clock. That's pretty late for cat people. So, but I was stuck for a venue and that's what I had to do. So you kind of learn, you learn what markets are your markets. Like I sell well in Cleveland for some reason and you kind of gravitate towards those, but it's a lot of trial and error. And it's important to take notes and go, this worked here. This is how many tickets I sold here. Don't get nervous about Oakland because they bought tickets late last time. So don't, you know, stress about it. I don't know. All those little things. There's a yeah. lot more involved when you're putting on your own shows, but the rewards from it are a lot higher too. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely harder because uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of people will uh, wait until week of or yeah. a few days before to buy tickets, which is why for people listening, you always see a lot of people do those uh, deals uh, buy before this date and, and it's, it's this price. Yeah. Yeah. It, because it's it's easier and it's not easy, but it's way easier to secure the venue and secure the date and all of that stuff. It's the getting the the tickets sold is what's generally more work. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, like you said, you're you're checking Eventbrite every five minutes. Like, where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we at? I mean, Miami was such a tough sell, and I got I had so many messages like of people saying, I would have came to your show if you would have had it in Fort Lauderdale, which is like 30 minutes north. So it's almost like someone going, I live in Escondido, but you're doing this show downtown. I don't want to come. Right. And you're like, just get on the freeway. What's the right. matter with you? And, uh, but you have to learn that thing. So next time if I go into the Miami area, I'm going to do it in Fort Lauderdale instead. Apparently that's going to be easier. <laughs> well, and for, you know, if a comic who travels, like that's nothing. You know, especially yeah. when you do the road and you would drive, I would drive, I would get up and do a, an eight hour drive, do the show, get up the next day and do another seven hour drive or a 10 hour drive or what. So you get yeah. used to that. So when someone's like, oh, it's 45 minutes away and I'm like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. Cause there's like some people that are like, can't you be closer? This is a 30 minute drive. And then there's other people that come up to me after the show and they're like, we drove four hours to get here. And you're like, oh, I hope I did well. <laughs> I hope that was worth it because I love Metallica, but I'm not driving four hours to see Metallica. Right. Uh, I got a couple comedy questions left. Uh, one, of course, is going to be uh, any funny audience stories that you might have. But uh, do you have any tips for aspiring comedians? Uh, tips for aspiring comedians, kind of like what I said before about not getting too into interpersonal drama. This isn't high school, this is your job, or at least right. you're trying to make it your job, right? So, Try to treat it as such in the sense that you can definitely have friends in this business. I do. I love hanging out with them. I love seeing them. And then you're also going to have people in this business that you're not that close to and maybe people you don't even like, but you never know where they're going to end up. They might end up booking something. They might end up owning a comedy club. They might end up working for Netflix. Be nice to everybody and get on stage as much as possible, especially in front of people you think won't like you. Make them, make them laugh at your joke figure out a word, way to word it to in a way that people that disagree with you like what you have to say and find it funny. That's cool. That's very good advice. Uh, I'm going to plug your social media. The last question for comedy will be any funny audience story. So if you need time to think on that, uh, but it, this is, we're talking with Zoltan Cassis, a uh, comedian actor. You can follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Zoltan Z O L T A N comedy, uh, YouTube Zoltan Cassis K A S Z A S and www.zoltancomedy.com. You can check out his Dry Bar Comedy special at drybarcomedy.com slash Zoltan. And uh, he's just all over the place and 
he's a, a good follow and you're definitely going to want to check him out. So, uh, have you thought of a, a funny audience story? Uh, have, I don't know. One? Yeah, well, I have a couple, but yeah, like, uh, this one used to be a closer for me, but one time I did a private event at American comedy company. They called me up day of and they're like, Hey, there's a birthday party. Uh, do you want to come close it out? It's only 10 minutes. I'm like, sure. And I show up and there's nine people in there. It's only nine people. It's for a lady's 50th birthday party. And they rented out the entire comedy club for nine people. So it's brutal. They're, they're sitting like in the fifth row in a line, like a firing squad, just like every comic going up bomb after bomb after bomb. And then I go up, I'm bombing. And the only thing they told me before I went on stage is I will know that my time is up when they, when I see a birthday cake coming up the side and that's when I'm just supposed to stop and start singing happy birthday. That's how the show's supposed to end. And I'm like, that's horrible, but okay. <laughs> they tell me this like, as I'm walking up stage and I, I'm like, okay. And so I'm on stage, I'm bombing and I feel like 10 minutes is coming up. So I'm trying to wrap up my set, but I'm doing so poorly. So I'm trying to do like interaction with the audience or something. So I'm trying to get into my last joke. So I asked the birthday girl, I'm like, are you single or are you, uh, you know, in a relationship? And she was cool before and now she's no longer cool. She like doesn't want to talk to me. She's like, I don't want to. And I was like, oh, easy. I'm not like trying to hit on you or anything. I thought that's what she meant. I'm just trying to get into this last joke. Are you single or are you in a relationship? And she's like, I don't want to. And then a huddle breaks out between her and her friends. Like it just gets quiet in this comedy club. And they're just like, and I'm like, what is happening? And then the birthday girl pops up out of the huddle and looks at me and she goes, I'm a widow. And as soon as she says widow, here comes a birthday cake. So I just look at her and I'm like, I, and I just start singing a happy birthday. <laughs> and that was like one of the worst shows I've ever done. Still not, I'm still burning down Penn State Harrisburg, but that one's also on the list. That's, that's a great one. All right, we're going to uh, switch really quickly to uh, an organization that uh, you wanted to spotlight today, and that was uh, Meals on Wheels. Yeah, I, I think uh, for people that don't know what Meals on Wheels does, uh, they deliver food at no cost to uh, low-income people that are stuck at home, whether they're disabled or old or both. Um, there are people that don't have family to take care of them. So this uh, this organization comes by and delivers, I don't know, thousands of meals every day. Like they, they do a lot of good, but they and they've been around for a long time, but they don't really pop up as much like they're not it just seems like they're not a, a sexy organization to give hmm. to you know and they do a lot of good for the community so the reason i picked them is they were also the ones that i did uh because i put my hour modern mail up on youtube for free the only thing i i set up a gofundme with a link so i was like go donate to this so at least there's some money being generated for something good and uh yeah so i picked meals on wheels yeah, it's, it's a great organization because nobody should go hungry. Uh, yeah, for, in this country, we have so yeah, much food. Exactly. And I, I know from personal experience, my mom is uh, 82, uh, 81 years old mm -hmm. and is currently living by herself and she's back in the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have set her up with Meals on Wheels and they, they go and they every day and make sure that she's got uh, something to eat and you know yeah. taken care of and, and it's, it's a wonderful wonderful organization and you can check them out at uh, mealsonwheelsamerica.org that's mealsonwheelsamerica.org so check them out and donate if you can uh, if you want to do it through zoltan's youtube gofundme you can or you can just go directly to their site and do that 
But uh, I just want to say uh, thanks uh, to Zoltan again. Uh, one more time, you can follow him. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Zoltan Comedy, YouTube.com, uh, Zoltan Cassis, and ZoltanComedy.com. Uh, also, DryBarComedy.com slash Zoltan. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and I want to thank you, Zoltan, for for coming by and uh, – not coming by, but, you know, stopping on by. And, uh, yeah, my, my pleasure, and, and uh, wish him more, nothing but the uh, best – I can't speak. Wish you nothing but the best uh, success going forward and looking forward to uh, working with you again soon.